Welcome back to Startup Engineering, a podcast that goes behind the scenes at startups. I'm Rob Defoe, startup advocate at AWS. Together, we'll hear from the engineers, CTOs, founders that built the technology and products at some of the world's leading startups. From launch through to achieving mass scale and all the bumps in between, experts share their experiences, lessons learned, and best practices. In this episode, our guest, Stu, a co-founder and staff engineer at Zigo, takes us behind the scenes of how they built and retrofitted a ledger. Stu, can you describe the problem that Zigo is using for the people that have not yet used it? Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Zigo is is building a brand new insurance company from scratch. Uh, the way insurance works uh, is not fit for the modern world. Uh, people are changing the way they work. People are changing the way they build companies. The the gig economy, the new mobility economy, the sharing economy, all of these things have emerged and really grown in the last five years. And traditional insurance companies are, are hampered by their systems, hampered by legacy systems and legacy processes that mean that they can't keep up and provide the kind of insurance products that people need to be able to do their job. So Zigo is all about empowering people to to go out and live their life uh, and work the way they want to work without being held back by insurance. That's amazing. So you were really quickly able to build this new product for this new market. And can you talk about some of the technology challenges that you faced when doing this? Yeah. So I think probably, probably a couple of the big ones were the fact that we needed to build a whole bunch of software from scratch. Um, so traditional policy management systems, for example, are, are used to dealing, like I said, with policies that last a year. Uh, maybe they last a month uh, at the shortest time. And we wanted to write policies that lasted 12 minutes. Um, when when we spoke to some initial underwriters uh, to try and get them to be bought into this, this product, they said, it costs us eight pounds every time we write a policy to our database for whatever reasons, all of their legacy systems and all of the, the licensing that they had. And so they said, we can't possibly sell a policy for 65p. Uh, and so we did have to write our own policy management system from scratch. And insurance is complicated. Um, the It's a... It's a legal minefield. Uh, you need to be very, very careful about what you're doing and making sure that people are covered because at the end of the day, it's potentially someone's livelihood. Um, and it's very, very important to get it right the first time. Uh, so on top of the, the massive amount of data that we started getting from these work providers, we were finding out who was on shift, working patterns and things like that, and dealing with all of that data. Uh, getting that into a system that we were able to handle customers working for multiple work providers at different times at the same time, overlapping shifts, uh, things like that. When it came to the finance side of things, uh, it became also very, very complex. It sounds like the approach that you've taken, you didn't necessarily expect all these challenges that you had, especially when you're moving quickly at the beginning. And so now what are the um, the challenges that you're having to face um, building the uh, the next step in your technology? Yeah. So, so probably uh, one of the most interesting projects that we've been building recently uh, is actually our own uh, accounting ledger. So there's a special type of accounting for insurance brokers called insurance broker accounting. Um, uh, yeah, no, they, they didn't get too creative. Um, but essentially, we hold at any time an uncomfortable amount of other people's money. 
Uh, so whether that's our customer's money, our underwriter's money, the taxman's money, uh, if you look in our bank accounts, that's not all ours. We can't go spend it on on Friday breakfasts and software engineering salaries. Uh, and so we needed to know exactly how much of that belonged to each one of our 40,000 customers, uh, how much of our, that money belonged to insurers and how much of that money we had to give to the taxman. Uh, and that there itself is very complex because we it's a rabbit hole. Uh, so like I said, we sell in five different countries around Europe. Uh, and not a single one of them deals with tax the same way. Uh, we thought it was going to be easy because we started in the UK and the UK tax is simple. It's 12% flat tax. Uh, our second country was Ireland. And we went, oh, this is a little bit more complex. It's uh, a flat tax plus a levy that you have to pay. Then we went to Spain uh, and we were like, there's a, a flat tax plus a levy plus another levy that depends on what kind of vehicle you're insuring. Okay, cool. We can get there. We went to France and they were like, here's, here's five different flat taxes depending on how much of the policy covers a certain type of risk and it just got more and more complex as we did it. Uh, so the way that most companies end up solving this and solving it for the accounting purposes is to throw an army of accountants at it. Um, a traditional insurance company or a traditional finance company, the a massive amount of their staff ends up being a very large finance department. And you're trying to build a technology first company above all else. Exactly. Um, our, our CEO, Sten, he's tasked us with um, beating Aviva, who have 120,000 staff, and doing it with less than 2,000. So that's going to require an awful lot of work on the technology side of things uh, to make sure that we can build a, a super efficient finance department. Um, what did this look like before? Before you had this new solution, what was it like and what was the process you had to go through to rebuild it? Oh God, you don't want to hear about our first version. <laughs> our first version, we just kind of, we, we kind of kept track um, of how much money people have put into their account um, and then overfunded our, our client money account um, to make sure that we would always have enough. Um, but we didn't have that many customers and so we did the we did throw a few accountants at it uh, so that we would find out exactly how much money we had. Uh, and then we would just kind of pay our insurers out of our savings account instead. And so, you know, we always, we always had enough money to pay everybody. But as we grew bigger and as we, you know, took on more and more customers, more and more varied products, more and more different underwriters, we needed to start actually doing this properly. How important is it to be precise with this type of system? When it comes down to certainly things like tax uh, and client money, uh, things have to reconcile to the penny. Um, if, we, if something is out by 1p, uh, then that is enough for us to stop what we're doing and go in and try and find out why it's out by P. It's interesting you're going down to the accuracy of the nearest penny. Is there a specific reason why you're doing that? Uh, probably the regulations, uh, the biggest one. So, so a regulated industry, we get, we have been audited in our three years, I think three times. Uh, and we fully expect to be audited on a regular basis, um, especially because we are doing something new. Uh, we are building a whole bunch of new technology and building things that the regulators haven't seen and building new products that the regulators haven't seen. So they want to make sure that we are doing things fair um, and that we're treating people fairly. And, and that is also one of our main goals, like our, our big three sort of company things that we want to be fair, we want to be simple and we want to be flexible. Uh, and 
that means that like if you give someone money you expect to get that money back um and to the penny if if you if you let me 10 pounds and i gave you back nine pounds and 99p and went oh it's only a penny it's fine uh you'd, you'd still feel a little bit like well hang on yeah, it might be fine, but it was still my penny. Um, so combine the fact that, you know, we want to make sure that if a user asks for their money back, which they it's, it's their money, they can have it, they get exactly what they're entitled to. Um, and certainly the tax man, he cares about a penny. Uh, and so it was, it was very much a case of making sure that this stuff worked. And that was one of the big problems. So uh, we've essentially been retrofitting this, this ledger uh, onto an accounting system that has been running for two and a half years. Uh, was this an off-the-shelf solution or is it something that you're building from the ground up? No, this is a, a new ledger that we're building uh, building on top to replace the the old sort of charges and credit system uh, that we built back in 2017, 16. Um, and so... What that meant was, you know, it was much more accurate. Uh, it was much more specific about exactly what different charges, who they were for, what account they were supposed to go into and things like that. How are you able to get to that level of detail and accuracy? Well, uh, a lot of work, <laughs> um, but mainly because we because we write our own software from scratch, we were able to integrate it really well into the platform that we're building. Uh, and so because we didn't have to integrate with an off-the-shelf policy management system, um, because we didn't have to integrate with an off-the-shelf user management system, uh, it was very easy for us to, to dig into the bits of the system that required integrating directly into that accountancy system and, and just put them in there. It's all, it's all our software. It's all our code. Uh, where it became tricky was when we do deal with third parties. Uh, so we don't, uh, handle payments ourselves. For example, um, we use Stripe for payments. We use GoCardless for bank transfers. We use a uh, financing company for, uh, doing sort of premium financing. And those all have varying levels of technical integration. Uh, Stripe is one of the gold standards for like how to do really great developer experience and really great integration. We can get a lot of information from them, uh, which allows us to automate things like someone does a, a dispute on a charge on their card. Uh, we can, it doesn't have to go through a manual process. Uh, that whole system can now be automated. Some of our other partners, less technically uh, efficient um, and it still requires little bits of manual processes um, and you know getting those integrations in place. So you have the requirement to be able to reconcile all these thousands of policies in, in a complete way and what's the most important thing that you need to be aware of or most important piece of information that you're capturing to do this? Um, so, so most of it is about exposure uh, and so exposing as much of the underlying data um, as we can, exposing as, as much of the underlying business events that caused a transaction to happen. Uh, money doesn't just uh, move for no reason. So if you can understand uh, why a transaction happened, uh, then even if it's something that the system can't exactly automate, you can still go, okay, so we know why this transaction happened. We know what are the parties involved and we know that money needs to have moved from these different places. Uh, so from this account to, to our insurer account and from uh, 
one of our customer accounts through to our account, or maybe they've used up some of their promotional credit and we have to move some money from our marketing account and marketing budget into their uh, insurer account. And and knowing exactly what's supposed to take place, uh, which the system can do, sometimes it's the exactly how much is supposed to move that requires one of our very smart accountants. So you've given us a good idea about why the ledger is so important and what it does. Can you explain to people a little bit about the architecture and some of the key pieces of technology you used to build this? Sure. So um, our, our main tech stack is is built on uh, Django and Python. Um, we, we're currently decomposing uh, our initial monolith, uh, which I think is a phase that most startups uh, go through. Um, it's quite an exciting one. Um, but we went with Python across the stack. So across the entire business, we use uh, Python. So our data scientists write in Python. We taught all of our BI people Python um, and all of our application stack is written in Python. Uh, it's all hosted on AWS. Um, surprise, surprise. Uh, we we went with with AWS quite early uh, because we knew that we needed to be cloud based, um, and we knew we needed to scale. Uh, so I didn't want to be managing uh, Postgres databases at two o'clock in the morning, uh, and so I we're on RDS. Uh, we use all sorts of things now, uh, Lambda, SQS, um, for a lot of the, the events and job systems that we do. What are your team mostly spending their time working on now? The work we're doing undergoing at the moment is to start pulling a bunch of these things apart, really untangling the web of a monolith uh, so that we can move into a service-based world, uh, which our systems engineers are very excited about because they'll get to, to use all sorts of fun new tools like Istio and Kubernetes and things like that. Um, and so we're spiking a lot of that at the moment. Uh, we're probably going to go down the gRPC route for our services. Um, it's and- and you're using gRPC so you can have that quick internal communication with your services? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, we really like the way that you can sort of enforce um, that hard contract and really code your APR contract uh, into the gRPC layer itself um, and then build out stubs, which will mean that, you know, when it's not even if, when we decide to use languages other than Python, uh, they can all interact really, really well. You've spoken a little bit about having a monolith, but you've built this new ledger. So is that something that you've built outside the monolith? It's it's currently still inside. Um, when we when we are building at the moment, um, we are building in a way that it is going to allow us to pull stuff out of the monolith very easily, um, whilst we still spike uh, exactly how we're going to do monitoring and tracing and, and logging and authorization and security and all of those bits around services. Uh, we're building new applications and new things into the monolith, um, but we are making sure that they stay very self-contained. Uh, and so they still talk to other parts of the monolith via a, a fairly well-defined contract. Uh, it's just that that contract happens to be in the same, like running in the same process um, and and on the same machine rather than over a network call. Without architectural boundaries, are you having to be more strict in code reviews to ensure that people aren't breaking this? It does. It takes a lot of, it takes a lot of uh, developer, uh, I guess, you write strictness um, and, and just the everyone is on the same page. So everyone knows that like we would rather spend a little bit of extra time doing this properly to save us a lot of time later trying to untangle it, uh, especially for something as complex as this ledger. Switching back to the ledger, um, when you were building this, uh, I guess there were some unexpected events or unexpected problems that you came across. Can you talk about some of the edge cases you had to deal with? Yeah. So uh, I guess one of the, one of the interesting bits, like I said, we've, we've, 
we didn't have it from the start. And so by putting it on uh, two and a half years in, uh, we needed to go back and reconcile to the beginning of time. Uh, which is very difficult because some of the data quality issues that were around from the times where, you know, late 2016, early 2017, when we didn't really know what we were doing, um, meant that as soon as you started to to try and reason about exactly why this particular bit of money moved or why this transaction happened, um, made it very difficult. Uh, we've actually got a new transaction type in the ledger uh, where a transaction is in suspense. Uh, and in suspense basically means no one's really quite worked out why this transaction happened. Um, we can tell what happened. We've always been able to know that some money moved between here and there and who it moved to. But understanding why that happened Sometimes, sometimes it's not there. So we had to come up with a, a version that we could we could say to people, "Hey, we're either looking, still looking into why this one, or sometimes just writing off and saying, "Yep, yeah, we know that we we gave this person some money um, at some point in the past, uh, and uh, you know, so long as we." are above board with it. Uh, and so long as most of the time it's us giving other people money, nobody cares too much. Um, and that's a really interesting approach and solution to the way that you solve this. And and this existed, was that because that you um, give a lot of flexibility to support staff or was it because of the early versions of the MVP and the software you built or, or something else? A lot, of it, a lot of it came down to flexibility we had early on. Um, we, we've always been very customer centric uh, and we've always had a, a really great customer service team um, who very early on were were given quite open tools to be able to to do whatever they needed to do. Um, do you know what I mean? If we had customers who needed to be given a refund for some reason, they could just go in and give them a refund. Um, and then going back two and a half later, two and a half years later, and saying to somebody, "Oh, this time that you transferred this money from our account to this customer's account, why did you do that?" Uh, and they're like, "This is." this is two and a half years ago, I don't remember, uh, which is a pretty valid excuse for someone who speaks to like hundreds of customers a day. And so uh, it was a lot of that like human, not human error, but human process that happened very early on um, that we didn't have a record of. Uh, and the other one was technical, like early versions of the software. So um, parts, some of the earliest parts of our software, like the the quotation engine and the pricing engine and things like that, which uh, didn't round decimal places uh, as deep as they do now. And so there would be rounding errors. And that's where quite a lot of the 1P errors come from is uh, the early versions of the software might round up or round down. Uh, and when you're dealing with taxes in percentages on low numbers, uh, you can quite easily break down a premium that should be a pound. Uh, and when you add up all of the bits of that breakdown, it gets to 99p instead. Uh, and so it's very easy to see those bits uh, and to understand like, oh, hey, I, I can see that this doesn't reconcile. Uh, but to understand exactly who that P belongs to uh, becomes quite tricky uh, because you then have to go through and be like, well, have we have we underpaid our tax ban? Have we underpaid our insurer? Have we made sure that the customer has paid uh, the right amount and not too much for their insurance? Uh, and so those are the bits that when we went back and uh, retrofitted all of the legacy data that we had into this new system. We found quite a lot of those. So at the moment you've, you've built the ledger, you think it's finished. Um, can you talk us through what happens when you turn it on and you're about to put two and a half years worth of data through it? What are the mechanics of this? I mean, how does that work? So 
so yeah, so essentially the way it's built now, it's it's all on an event-based system. And so an event happens that causes a transaction and we write those transactions or it causes a future transaction. We write a pending transaction and all of that stuff. So that there is really easy. Volumes are fairly steady. Um, when it came time to do that for all of the backfill transactions, uh, it was one big job. Like we had uh, something in the order of half a million transactions um, and each transaction has like seven or eight different entries in the transaction and so we're talking like six million uh six and a half million rows that we needed to calculate and write into the database um and so we we patched it up and we did it as a job and fully expected that job to take about six hours uh and so kicked it off one night and said cool uh let's let's come back tomorrow morning and see what this job looks like and we come back the next morning uh and we get in the office and we look at the logs and it's about 20 percent of the way through uh and so we're like okay this six hours is probably going to be more like a week um so uh one of the interesting like we actually had to stop the job um because what we hadn't built into it was the ability for the job to restart uh and and not have to restart from the beginning of time. So you built it in such a way that if you got, say, the first 10,000 transactions correct, but then there was a problem, um, you wouldn't have to start again. We'd have to start if, if the job was to to be killed. And this is, you know, one of the one of the considerations you need to take into account when running long running jobs on on like cloud servers and things like that. If you don't batch them up into lots of little jobs, um, a server can get killed underneath you. Um, and so it's one of the things that you take into account when you're building an application. Most requests and things like that are relatively short-lived and can be retried. If you have a job and that one single job is taking hours and hours at a time, the chances of, of needing to restart that job it, like grow exponentially. So we did it. We, we, we stopped the job uh, and then we broke it up uh, so that instead of one long running job, it would be a couple of million of very, very short running jobs, um, which was great because it meant we could stick them all in a queue and watch the queue go down. Uh, and if for whatever reason our servers died or got taken away or somebody was deploying and they needed to restart, um, it wouldn't hold that up. So now you have the ability to retry things. And then what happens when you um, run subsequent jobs? What are the things that you learned and things you experimented with? Uh, so, so most of the iterations went through, like once we had done the backfill, um, finding the bugs. So finding not only the bits where the bugs were caused by legacy data, uh, those were just a manual process, a very long manual process involving the engineers and the accounting team uh, to actually work out what should have happened and manually updating transactions and entries. Uh, but then it was the ones that uh, were continuing to happen. So the ones where the rounding errors uh, were coming from deep within parts of the system that were two years old. Uh, and so the option there is either paper over those cracks in the accounting ledger or dig into the systems that people hadn't touched for a year and fix them. Uh, and so we went with the second option. We were like, no, if we're going to spend the time, let's spend the time fixing these deep in the issues. And so the tax engine, the quotation engine, uh, all of our, our pricing factors and things like that, uh, instead of going to two or three decimal places, some of them now go to 10 decimal places. Uh, and so what that means is that the whole system is more accurate uh, right from deep down. So each time you've fixed a bug or you've improved the system, um, you, you've made it correct, but you've made it correct in the past. So how do you manage that? How do you fix these things? 
Uh, we go back and we fix the past. So that means you're literally running it over all the old data and getting new results for it. Yeah, we ran it, we ran it over all of the old data. Um, and so every time we find one of these bugs, um, cause we, cause we, we know how much of the old data is not precise. Um, and so we can work out where, which transactions uh, are in suspense or which transactions are in require a fix. And you can, you can look at that and you can say, okay, cool. If we make this fix, not only is it going to fix this bug going forward, but this is going to fix, uh, you know, 10% of all of the errors in our historical transactions. Uh, and so you run that over your historical transactions. Uh, and, and when I say like we change the past, most of the time that change the past is not go into the database records and change the previous database records. Like a, a ledger is supposed to be append only. Uh, and so usually it means creating new transactions uh, that will actually fix uh, on an, in an accounting sense, the previous ones. So if you've uh, overcharge someone by a penny two years ago, uh, you give them a penny refund today. Um, and this is an important characteristic about a ledger. You can't go back in past and change it, so you need to add another transaction to, to make an alteration. So now that the ledger is working, you've been firing transactions at it, it's, it's, it's all updated, it's more accurate, it, does it just work or, or is there more that needs to be done? Oh, there's a there's a lot more to do. Uh, so it is running. Um, we it's running for for probably about eighty percent of our products at the moment. Um, I think we when I say we started, we had about half a million transactions of backfill. Um, we're now just over a million transactions, uh, which means eight nine million entries, um, and that doesn't include any of our B two B transactions. So they're all still handled manually by the accounting team. So we we sell products to consumers, so delivery riders, Uber drivers, things like that. Um, but we also sell larger group fleet policies um, to people starting kick scooter companies or people who have a fleet of 100 vans um, who don't need insurance on all 100 vans all year round because half the year their vans are sitting in a garage and half the year it's Christmas time and they're all out on the road like delivering. And so they are also really beneficial of our flexible insurance policies. Um, and so what we do is we currently manually handle all of those transactions. They're lower in volume, um, but often a little bit more complex um, because of the usage data for large volumes of fleets, even if it's under one transaction. So the next step is to get the rest of those in um, so that we can completely automate all of the the manual processes and the, the grudge work that our accounting team have to do. With the ledger in place now and, and all the data um, that's been updated and, and even more accuracy, are you able to run different types of reports and use different tooling on top of it? Yeah. So so we have quite a, a strong data engineering team. Um, and what they do is pull data not only from from this ledger uh, for analytics, but also from uh, all of our policy management systems and all of the rest of it, uh, all the way through to all of our website and app analytics uh, and pull it into a data warehouse, make that available for the BI team. Uh, we use a tool called Looker. With Looker being the tool that your business analysts are using, where's the data? What tool is used to get the information out? Uh, so we have Redshift for our, our data warehouse um, and that, that pulls 
all of the other data stores. So it pulls from, we have a number of RDS databases, uh, we've got a DynamoDB database, uh, and then it also pulls from external sources. So it pulls everything out of uh, our, not only our ledger, but also our bank account details. So things like zero that we use for expenses. Uh, it pulls from Google Analytics, it pulls from all of these other places into this one store so to really aggregate all of our different data sources in one and then make that available so that you can run analytics uh, across multiple different data sources. Solving the problem of accounting for every penny when insurance premiums are measured in minutes rather than years, and then retrofitting years worth of data and transactions against it was a difficult challenge. And using engineering resources rather than an army of accountants creates a scalable solution. Zigo takes an iterative approach to building software and has well-defined contracts in their monolith and allows them to move quickly and create code boundaries that can be broken out into microservices in the future. Engineering a ledger to be 100% correct when running over all data is an impractical approach, but creating checkpointing allows Zigo to iteratively build the ledger and fix bugs without having to start from zero each time. Let's get back to Stu to hear about the learnings, best practices and advice that he has to offer. Going through this process, you have learned a lot. And if you were able to start again today, knowing everything that you know now, what would you do differently? Uh, so, so one of the big ones is making sure that we understand where the deficiencies in our legacy data occur. Uh, and so there are another, a number of other projects, uh, ongoing at the moment to, to really make sure that the, the application that we built when we were, you know, six months old and had no idea what we were doing uh, or where we were going to be in a few years uh, is actually scalable to the existing systems. And it's all well and good to come up with a brand new system and a brand new set of data models and go, yeah, this is this is so much better. If you have no way of migrating your existing data into those models, um, then you're going to be in for a world of hurt. Uh, I mean, that's what we found in this, you know, there has been a lot of late nights and a lot of, of manual work gone into ensuring that all of that past data was cleaned up. Uh, and some of that we, we could have done beforehand uh, and it would have been faster. You spend a lot of computing time calculating things that are wrong and then fixing a bug and having to spend computing time recalculating those things to make them right. So some of that data could have been fixed up beforehand and some of it couldn't. Some of it we didn't know that it was wrong until we had done this work. Um, and so looking into some of the other projects that we have upcoming around user management and CRM and things like that, it's really about cleaning up some of that legacy data before we start embarking on the project um, and then as I said you know we are very much in the decompose our monolith to services stage uh, and so when we are building stuff we are still needing to build onto our our existing platform our existing monolith and building that in a way that we know is going to be easy to pull it apart uh, in six months time uh, is something that goes into every single bit that we do now. Uh, it's one of the main considerations. You were very intentional the way that you started out with the monolith and it's, it's worked really well for you. You're able to get up and running really quickly, but now you're having to pull it apart and that's significant engineering effort. Is there something that you would have done differently? Y yes and no. Um, I definitely still would have started with a monolith. Um, I think that going into, certainly going into an industry that you don't have years and years and years of domain knowledge about, um, you you don't know where those boundaries are going to be drawn. 
and we didn't know, like we changed our business model three times in the first six months. Uh, we changed our, our pricing system. We changed so many things very, very early on um, that if I had been trying to draw very hard boundaries right at the beginning, um, I would have spent all of my time redrawing boundaries uh, instead of just allowing everything to grow. Uh, and that's been one of the things that allowed us to succeed and grow so quickly. Uh, I probably would have started the work that we're doing now to to really start drawing those boundaries, even internally within the monolith, uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, we started this probably about halfway through last year. Any new modules that were added uh, were added with essentially a contract layer on top of them and anything that needed to use those, those new modules used it via this contract. Um, I think we probably could have started that maybe six, 12 months earlier. There's a lot of discussion around building microservices or monoliths first, but you know, sometimes if you're building microservices from the beginning, defining the process boundaries is really, really difficult. Is there a methodology to be able to define them process boundaries up front? Exactly. Um, and if anyone ever says that they fully understand where all of their boundaries for their services should lie on day one, um, then either they're an absolute genius uh, or they're a little bit delusional. Um, and I certainly would have been delusional if I had tried to tell anyone that I knew enough about insurance and enough about a product that was brand new um, in an industry that was fast changing uh, in the middle of 2016, because I didn't. Thank you, Stu, for sharing your best practices, experiences, and lessons learned. If you're excited about building the next big thing, or you want to learn from the engineers that have been there and done that, subscribe to Startup Engineering wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to check out the show notes for useful resources related to this episode. Until the next time, keep on building.